Good morning, All People's Church. How you doing? Who's excited to be here? All right, all right. Hey, we're going to have some fun in church today. How many know it's okay to have fun in church? It's a good thing, right? All right, so how many of you have played the game Two Truths and a Lie? All right, I'm going to share some things about me that you might not know and one thing that's not true, and then at the end, you get the opportunity to guess which story about me is not true, all right? All right, so three stories, starting with number one. In college, I tried out for season seven of the show Survivor, made it through the first round, road tripped out to Seattle for the second round of assessments, and then I was flown out to L.A. for the third round of assessments, down to 32 contestants, but was ultimately cut and did not make the final 16. <laughs> Story number two. During my junior year of high school, a house fire started in my bedroom from a series of fish tanks and lizard terrariums that were all plugged into one outlet and covered with a vinyl beanbag. It ultimately forced us out of our home for three months while our house was rebuilt. Story number three. When I was about three years old, I was bucked off of a llama at Bush Gardens in Florida, which landed me on another llama, which jumped up, threw me into the air, and I cracked my head on the cement, resulting in a concussion, and the park gave me a free admission, which I have yet to use to this day. <laughs> All right. Story number one, survivor. Story number two, fire. Story number three, llama, okay? So I'm, by show of hands, how many of you think that story number one is not true? How many of you think story number two, the story of the house fire, is not true? And how many of you think story number three, the story of the llama, is not true? You're not that good. Survivor is not true. Good job, everybody. I did have a friend who underwent that process, and I was with him on that road trip, but it was not me. So that's why that story sounds so real. Well, this past week, it was interesting. I was having a couple conversations with two different people, and they both asked me, when did you know that you wanted to become a pastor? And I thought about it for a while because I was like, I don't know that there was an actual moment where, you know, this divine moment where God said, you're going to be a pastor. But what's interesting is that I did uh, grow up in a Catholic home. And my parents, when they had the birds and the bees conversation with us, I was so disgusted by the notion that I resolved that I was going to be a priest. <laughs> I was certain of it. I was certain of it. And then something divine did happen, I guess, and that when I hit adolescence, all of a sudden I was so sure that I was not going to become a priest. I was going to get married. I was sure of it. And I'm so glad I was not called to celibacy. My wife Katie's right here, and I'm so thankful to spend my life with her, and uh, not alone. So <laughs> praise God that pastors can be married. It's a, it's a joy. But I did, I always was, and this is what I think drew me into ministry, I did always have this desire to change the world. I wanted to do something to improve the world, change the world, do something incredible. And I believe that we all have a call towards greatness in our life. But my journey led me in a number of different places, different mission trips, immersion trips. And then in college, actually, I joined up with AmeriCorps. Anybody heard of AmeriCorps? And my job was serving the Gallatin Valley Food Bank of Bozeman, Montana. And so I worked there to eradicate hunger and homelessness. And I started a student group on campus. They actually wrote an article about me. And I want to show you a picture of me from that time. <laughs> That's me. 
That's all me in my glory. So blonde dreadlocks, earrings, eyebrow ring, black fingernail, you know, that was me. And I was a bleeding heart, socialist, revolutionary wannabe through and through. I wanted to change the world. And I was bent set on ending hunger and homelessness in the Gallatin Valley. But I'll never forget in the food bank, there was this mural on the wall. And you've heard this phrase before, but it said, you give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. And if you teach a man to fish, you... Yeah, so you've heard this before, and it, that's what I want to talk about today, is how do we actually meet the needs of the people around us? How is it that we might feed people for a lifetime? So I was doing some research about the area that our church resides in, the place that many of us live, and I found the statistic that 29.9% of residents in City Heights live at or below poverty. This might be a surprise to you, and <clears throat> it might not be, because if you had your eyes open this morning on your way to church, you probably saw a lot of people in need. We see homeless people all the time camped on sidewalks, between buildings, bus stops, and we see people even resorting uh, to desperate means when they're begging for food, and they're begging for money. They have cardboard signs that say, I'm hungry, I'm a homeless vet, fallen on hard times, anything helps. And so the need is very apparent. Um, if you, if you spend any time in this area. What's even more staggering is that when I was doing research, I came across this website called areavibes.com. It's a great website if you're interested in moving to a place or renting a place or uh, working in a place. And this was City Heights West report card. And what is so staggering to me is that we have an A-plus in amenities, so those are like parks and libraries, and then we have an A-plus in weather, which that's what we call, you know, the, the sunshine tax here in San Diego, and then we have an F in every other category. Cost of living, F. Crime, F. Employment, F. Housing, F. Schools, F. You can't make this up. And I was looking at different cities, and they range from, you know, A's and B's and C's, D's maybe in there, but all F's? except for weather and amenities. That's where we live right now. That's where our church resides, and these are the people that God has called us to reach. Yep. And each of us have theories on, the, on, on what causes these issues. You know, we're, we're experts in diagnosing the issue. We say things like the system is broken. The wealthy are hoarding the money. They took prayer out of the schools. There's been an attack on the family. The influx of illegal immigrants. Our law enforcement organizations are not doing their job. Whatever the theory is, we seem to be experts at it, but we don't always know what the solution is. So what then is the solution? How is it that we, need, we meet the needs of the world around us? That's what I want to answer today. Is anybody else interested in knowing the answer to that question? How do we meet the needs of the people around us? So if you uh, remember, you've been here the past few weeks, Robert's been teaching us about the three kingdoms that we find, especially as we read through the Bible. There's three kingdoms that we find, and I did a little pre-writing because I'm not very good at spelling in front of y'all, and that would be <laughs> embarrassing. <clears throat> there are three kingdoms that we find. The kingdom of this world, which is typified by wealth, health, power, prestige, and sex. We have the kingdom of religion, which is typified by superiority, perception, exclusivity, rules, and control. And then we have the kingdom of God. And I really believe that each of these kingdoms actually have their own answer to the problems of the world, the great needs of our world, including things like hunger. And so the kingdom of the world, their answer is philanthropy. You've all heard this term before, philanthropy. It actually means the love of humanity. 
the love of humanity. And so there are a number of organizations, individuals, millionaires who pour money into different social causes. And I think that it's good. Like Kendall was saying, it's, it's a spirit of generosity that's good. But in and of itself, I think it's void and deficient and not actually going to fix all the problems. In the kingdom of religion, there are tons of religious laws. In the Old Testament, we read about this thing called charity, this notion of giving to the least of these, alms for the poor, and clothing the naked, and feeding the hungry. And, and so there are a lot of great charity organizations out there, and many of us have participated in them. And again, not bad in and of itself, but I think it's not going to solve all the problems of the world. And I have proof of that as I was reading through an article that I found from the Voice of San Diego, uh, author Megan Burks writes this. Since 2000, two foundations alone have invested more than $265 million into the neighborhood. And she's talking about City Heights. But despite that mammoth injection of cash, the foundations that have made long-term commitments to the neighborhood, Price Philanthropies and the California Endowment, we have little hard evidence to show they've improved the lives of the residents there. Nearly every researcher and community organizer you talk to in City Heights admits the needle hasn't really moved on any statistical gauge. So again, $265 million pumped into this area, you know, to build great amenities, right? And to feed different, different social work programs. But yet, if you look outside and you walk around our city, I don't think that what we see out there is restored living and revival. I don't think we're there yet. And so, again, good and good, but not quite there. There's something missing. So I think at this point, I want to look at the text today because I believe the answer is going to be found here. If you have your Bibles, grab it, turn to Mark chapter 6. And if you didn't bring your Bible, you're in good luck today because today is a movie day in class. Those are always the best days, right? Teacher's out of town, so, hey, Robert, I'm not going to preach anymore. I'm just going to show a movie. Uh, it's a two-minute clip, so let's watch that together now. Master, send the people away, so that then they can go to the villages and farms around here and find food and lodging. This is a lonely place. You yourselves give them something to eat. But all we have are five loaves and two fish. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. Oh, 
It's a great clip. You know, it, it's always incredible to think through what that might have actually looked like, right? To experience one of these great miracles in Scripture. Well, I want to read together uh, the actual passage from Mark. So Mark 6, starting in verse 32. You can follow along with me on the screens. We'll read this now. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Well, so about 10 years ago, when uh, Katie and I were first engaged and getting ready to get married, I started developing uh, what we now know as celiac disease, uh, extreme gluten intolerance. And so over the course of about a year, I learned how to live without bread. And I, I learned that as, as hard as that was to adopt that lifestyle, I learned that life isn't all about bread, right? There's, there's other things that can sustain us, and there's more to this life than bread. Um, I had to give up pizza, pasta, bread, cereals. I, it was really hard, but a person can live without bread, right? Um, and so I think there's a misconception here, sometimes when we read these passages, to think that it's all about the bread, that this story is all about the bread and the fish and the food, actually, that is being multiplied. The disciples were slow to get this, and trust me, no judgment. I don't think I'd be any quicker. But Jesus performs this miracle in Mark 6, and then he performs a similar miracle in Mark 8, where he feeds the 4,000. And he does two miraculous miracles feeding multitudes of people with a small amount of loaves and fishes. And then the disciples find themselves in a situation where they're traveling from one place to another, they get into a boat with Jesus, and they forgot the bread. They forgot to bring something to eat. And so Jesus hears them murmuring among themselves, and he says this to them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they said. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They said, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Jesus is saying it's not about the bread. It's not about the bread. So then what is this story signifying if it's not about solving a hunger crisis in the Middle East? 
You know, I think that upon uh, initial reading of this, somebody like myself in college would be like, yeah, Jesus is starting this social revolution. He's taking care of all the needs of the people in the Middle East, and he's my ticket to this, this incredible, life-changing, world-changing event. And so what I think will be helpful is for us to actually look at the people that were there with Jesus and their lives, his disciples, specifically Peter. Peter was one of the closest disciples of Jesus, and he's an eyewitness to these events. Now, he himself didn't write the gospel. A man named John Mark, scholars conclude, wrote the gospel, and Peter was his source for all of his materials. So first century, early Christian church, Peter's one of the apostles that's leading the church, and then John Mark comes along and starts penning these stories that Peter's sharing with him. And I think it's helpful to understand Peter's journey through these, because if we take on Peter's lenses, it's going to help us see more clearly what Jesus is actually trying to teach us. In the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, we see a lot of things happen with Peter. The first one is that he's called by Jesus. Jesus says, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then one of the next things we see right away is that Jesus actually heals Peter's mother-in-law. I don't know about you, but that'd be a miracle for me if God healed somebody in my family. She had a fever. He touched her. She got up immediately and started serving Jesus. Then Jesus gives Peter a new name. He says, your name is no longer Simon, but Peter, which means rock. Peter, you are rock. Peter is among the inner circle. Peter, James, and John, they get brought in on these different experiences with Jesus. And then Peter witnesses various miracles, including the feeding of the 5,000. So he was there. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah in Mark 8. And so in Mark 8, what we see happen is after all these miracles, Peter's starting to slowly get this. He's like, I think I understand what's going on. And so Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, well done, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Spirit in heaven. And and then what happens, just shortly after that, Peter thinks it's a good idea to rebuke Jesus, the Messiah, for his plans to go die on the cross for the sake of the world. And then Jesus has to rebuke Peter for saying that stupid thing, and and we, we continue on. What we see next is Peter witnesses the transfiguration. They go up on the mountaintop, and Moses and Elijah appear there at the mountaintop. Jesus is radiant, transformed. The the cloud covers them, and and all of a sudden, Peter says something really, really stupid, and he says, it's really good for us to be here. We should build you three tabernacles for you and your friends, which you're like, why would you even say that? And again, no judgment. I'd probably say something very stupid as well. And, uh, And then, towards the end of the book of Mark, Peter declares endless allegiance to Jesus. Peter, who's followed him, witnessed these miracles and calls him the Messiah, says, if everyone else falls away, I will not. But we all know what happens next. Peter denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. So the servants of the religious leaders are outside of the the palace, and they start asking Peter, weren't you with Jesus? He says, no, I don't know him. I don't know him. And three times he denies association with Jesus. And the last words of Peter in the Gospel of Mark is, I don't know this man you are talking about. It's a profound thing because you think that Peter's the one telling his own story, right? It's like, why would you end your own biography in that way? And I think the answer is because there was another movie coming out. (laughs) There was another story coming out, stories to come of Peter and who he becomes after this moment. 
The Gospel of Mark is like a good cliffhanger movie. You know, you think of some of the greatest classic cliffhangers of all time, like The Empire Strikes Back. Anybody around to see that actually in the theaters? Anybody actually see The Empire Strikes Back in the theaters? Come on, don't be ashamed. All right. <laughs> you know, at the end of the movie, you know, Han Solo is encased in carbonite. Lando Calrissian and Chewie set off for Tatooine in the Falcon, and we ask ourselves, will Han survive? Did Darth Vader really mean it when he said he was Luke Skywalker's father? It's this epic cliffhanger, and people have to wait these years for the next movie. Then how about the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Rings? Gandalf and Boromir are dead. Merry and Pippin have been kidnapped by the orcs, and Frodo and Sam are split off from their companions. And we have to wait all these years for the next story. Anybody around to see that one in the theater? More hands? All right, and now we know this one, the Avengers Infinity War, okay? All right, I was warned not to give this away. I gave it away last night, and I won't give away the end. No spoiler alerts here, but there is a very grim ending at the end of the Avengers Infinity War. That's all I have to say. Uh, and that's the way the book of Mark ends. You have this empty tomb. We don't even see Jesus uh, in the original manuscripts, we don't see Jesus anywhere. You see this angel who says, you know, why are you looking for him here? And the women who are there at the tomb uh, run away because they're fearful. That's it. That's it. And so as I was studying for this, this, uh, this message this week, I said, Lord, this is not great material here in and of itself. Like, I, what, what were you doing? And so I said, well, I want to take a look at who Peter then was after the resurrection? What records do we have of Peter after the resurrection? So I started reading through the book of Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostle. And in the book of Acts, right away we see that Jesus reveals himself to his disciples, followers, and hundreds of other people over the course of 40 days. The risen Jesus reveals himself and shows himself in the flesh and blood to these people. And so Peter uh, was among those people. So then, in Acts 2, we read this. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. In Acts 5, we read this. They called the apostles in, these are the religious leaders, and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. What we see from scripture and from tradition is that Peter would go on years later, some years later, to die in Rome as a martyr by crucifixion on an upside-down cross because he did not consider himself worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord and Savior. This was not the same Peter that we ended with in the book of Mark. And so we have to remember that when we see the story, when we read the story of the feeding of the 5,000, that was pre-resurrection. And so Peter's looking at this through the lenses of, man, it's all about the bread. It's all about getting people the bread, right? But then it clicks for him. And for me, this revelation was so powerful this past week as I was spending time with Jesus and just reading through the book of Acts. I was reading about how the apostles never stopped preaching, even though they were told not to. And then they were persecuted not to. And then ultimately, Peter goes to his own death in the name of Jesus. It hit me so hard that there is nothing 
Nothing on this earth or in the world that could ever take this man, Peter, who denies his Savior, he's two-faced, he says, I'll never abandon you, and then he denies him three times, could never take that fearful man who's scared of the servants of the religious leaders to go in front of the religious leaders themselves and say, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And that revelation, I think, will help us understand what the feeding of the 5,000 is all about. So if it's not about the bread, what was going on here? What was going on here is what we would call a miracle or a sign and a wonder. And signs and wonders are an indication that something of heavenly nature is happening among us. What a sign and wonder is is its validation that the person speaking and the message they have is of God. It's a sign and a wonder. What sign and wonders are not, are not they are not strategies for life. They're not strategies for social revolution. I don't think it's a good idea for any of us to just hope that God is going to show up and, and pour down manna on heaven for city heights. It's not a strategy. It's a sign and a wonder and a miracle that we're pointing to something else and that something or someone else is Jesus. Jesus himself says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So how do you feed a person for a lifetime? The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. The greatest ploy of the enemy is to convince us that it's all about bread in this life, when what we really need is actually the bread of life. You know what I'm saying? Like when, when we come into hard times, financial, physical, we get sick and a loved one dies or we lose our job, whatever that is, we start to think about it's all about bread in this life. It's all about, we don't have money to pay the bills. We get scared, right? Peter got scared. Peter got scared because he didn't get it. He thought Jesus was incredible. He thought Jesus had powers, but he didn't get that it wasn't about bread in this life, that Jesus himself was the bread of life. So you might ask, well, then do, do my earthly needs, do physical needs not matter at all? No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus cares more about our physical earthly needs than anybody ever any social worker, any charitable organization, any philanthropist. And you know what? He doesn't ask whether or not we're deserving of provision. He provides for us anyway because he loves us. And so where so much of the world is like working, hoping that they were good enough, that they did enough good things, that they didn't sin enough this past week, that God's going to bless them, God blesses us anyway because he loves us. And that's good news for us, church. And what I love is that Peter actually goes on to perform his own miracle. In the book of Acts, you might have missed this, Peter feeds 5,000. What we find actually is that as Peter's preaching, people are starting to follow. And in Acts 4, we, we read this. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. You see, the bread of life actually leads to bread in this life. 
but the one has to come before the other. So you could feed a man to fish. Uh, You could feed a man a fish. You could teach him how to fish. But at the end of the day, at the end of his life, he's going to die. Jesus performed all these miracles. He performed this miracle of the feeding the 5,000, but those individuals went back to their villages that night, and they cooked a meal, or the next morning they cooked a meal, they fished for fish, they bartered for goods, and eventually they died, right? Jesus would raise somebody from the dead, but that's a sign and a wonder that something heavenly was present among them, not the strategy for life, because it's not about bread in this life, it's about the bread of life. All right. We're going to end a little bit early, but I want to end with these two truths and one lie that we see from Scripture. Truth number one, you are not the Savior. Jesus is. We don't have the power to save people from their sins. We don't have the power to fix people ourselves. Jesus alone is the solution. So some of us have been carrying these burdens and we've been striving so hard to fix people around us, right? Might be our neighbor, might be the person sitting next to you, might be your spouse, a family member, or it could be on a global scale and you're like, man, I am so burdened for this cause or this cause. And at the end of the day, we need to remember that Jesus alone is the Savior. So I think the application for us is that we need to lay our burdens down at the feet of Jesus and put him again on the throne. Truth number two, Jesus invites us to play a role in the work of saving people. You remember Jesus says, you give them something to eat. So, so it's not that we don't have any role in all of it. It's not that we don't do anything, but we have to hear God's voice. That's why it's so important to spend time with Jesus every day, to be listening for the Holy Spirit so we know what he's calling us to give. Because if you remember, God didn't say, give them everything. He said, you give them something to eat. In that moment, he said, you give them something to eat. He didn't say, take them into your home and feed them for a lifetime. He said, in this moment, I'm calling you to give this. And this will be a sign of my love unto them. And that revelation then will come, that I am the bread of life. So we have these excuses. But if I give this, I won't have enough for my family. But we got to remember the two feeding miracles. And in the second feeding miracle, they actually had more. They had seven loaves and some fish, and they actually had a less return afterwards. They ended up with seven baskets. Whereas in the first miracle, they had five loaves, and they ended up with 12 baskets. So it's almost as if the less we bring to the table, the less we have to give, the more God delights in showing himself to be the provider. We also have this excuse, this will never work. Like, it won't work. Like, me just handing this to them or giving this to them or doing this, it's never going to work. The problems are so deep and so big. But we have to remember that the greatest ploy of the enemy is to convince you that what you have in your hands is a loaf of bread when actually what you possess and have is the bread of life. And that changes people. That saves people. We're going to be distributing these Jesus film DVDs, and I'm really excited about this, and some of you might just be wrestling, like, does that actually work? Does somebody watch a movie and give their life to Jesus? 8.1 billion people have watched this film. 572 million people have reported decisions to following Jesus after watching this film. 572 million people. More than, uh, other than the Bible, this has been used 
more in the world for bringing people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ than anything else. It's translated in eight different languages, so people can watch it in their own native language, um, the eight most common languages uh, found in America. And there's actually three films. There's one about Mary Magdalene for women, there's one for, geared for children, and then there's the, the original Jesus film. And remember, the greatest ploy is he's gonna try, the enemy's going to try to convince you, like, this will never work. That will never work. But what you possess is the bread of life, and people need it. City Heights needs it. Our hope for you here at All People's Church is that you'd get rocked, you would, and you would. That's right. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. When we say give it away, this is what we're talking about, the bread of life, Jesus himself. Because when you've experienced the love of God and the revelation that comes to you that Jesus overcame death, he overcame sin and sickness, and he proves to us that there is more to this life than bread. There is eternity to look forward to. When you have that revelation, you can't help but give it away. So today we're going to be preparing for Saturate San Diego. Our kids are doing it in the kids' ministry, and we're going to be doing it as well here. And in a moment, I'm going to invite Kendall to give us some instructions on what that will look like. But I want us to pray together. I want you to pray with me for City Heights, that they would have the great revelation, like Peter did, that Jesus rose from the dead, and that it's not all about bread in this life. It's all about experiencing the bread of life.